Would you die for Jesus? Would you die for Jesus? Now that I've got your attention, morning everybody. That's quite a question. I remember when I was younger, asking myself that question often. I don't know, maybe it was just what was going on in my life. But I haven't asked myself that question for a really long time. And my context, living here in Westville in South Africa, I don't have to ask myself that question every day because of my circumstances. But it's really important to remind ourselves that there are people, believers all around the world, who are forced to ask themselves that question every day. Christians who are working in closed countries who would be killed for their faith. The reason I start the sermon this morning with that question is because we are in Acts chapter 7 this morning. We are in a series that we've entitled chapter 29. We're going through the book of Acts, and although there are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, it's a story about the church, and we recognize that that story is not finished. And so as we look into chapter 29, what is the story that we are writing right now? What is our part in the journey and the life and the story of the church. And so today we're in Acts chapter 7 and we look at the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. If you were around last week, uh, we gave you a warning that this is a long chapter. So last week Richard had 15 verses, this week I've got 60. Are you ready? It's the longest chapter in Acts and we are not on WhatsApp so you can't set it to double time listening. Um, if only we could, that would be amazing, hey? But um, strap on your seatbelts this morning. This is a jam-packed chapter of Scripture that we are going to be looking at this morning. Um, and I'm going to dive straight in. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? So let's get a bit of context. Let's catch everybody up in terms of the story. Who is Stephen? Why is he in front of the high priest? And what are the charges? When we're asking that question, are these charges true? So last week, uh, Richard introduced us in chapter 6 to this person called Stephen. And chapter 6 speaks so highly of this man. Um, verse 5 of chapter 6 says, he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 said, a man full of God's grace and power. Chapter 6, verse 10 said, But they could not stand up against the wisdom God gave him as he spoke. And chapter 6, verse 15 says, His face was like the face of an angel. What a remarkable guy. I would love to meet this person, hey? I don't know if any of you have been described as having the face of an angel recently. Anyone? Well, some of you, some of you, that's good. But what a man. A man clearly of deep, deep character. He was a deacon in the church. He was a servant in the church. And as we're about to see, he was a proper preacher, which is actually why he got in, in trouble in the first place. He had been preaching and he had been performing signs and wonders. We see this in the second half of chapter 6. And so he's taken before the Sanhedrin because of this. And they ask him that question, are these charges true? Kind of saying, like, how do you plead? Are you guilty? Are you not guilty? What's the deal here? So what are the charges that he has been, you know, what are the charges? Stephen's been accused of four counts of blasphemy. 
in the previous chapter. We see that he's been accused of blaspheming against Moses and God, and he's accused of blaspheming against the temple and the law. So four counts of blasphemy. This is the accusation that's been thrown at Stephen. Now, this is a lie. Again, in chapter 6, we read about false witnesses. You know, they've, they've been completely overwhelmed by this man's wisdom. Nobody can out-argue him. He's brilliant. He's articulate. And he is filled with the Spirit. And so I think the kind of stance of the Sanhedrin was like, if we can't win the argument, let's just make up a lie. And we're going to put some false witnesses there. Um, and, and then they're going to kind of just plead a case. It sounds a little bit familiar, right? It's the trial of Jesus, where they brought false witnesses and they ask this question, how do you plead? Are these charges true? Now, now me, personally, they haven't been able to out-argue this guy. I would not have let the man speak. If you, if you can't out-argue the guy, let's just keep him, you know, keep him quiet. That's what they were trying to do in the first place. To be fair, they did just ask him a simple question. Are these charges true? Many of us might not see this as an open door to share about our faith and share about Jesus, some of us might need a, a more direct, will you please tell me about Jesus kind of question. Um, but Stephen sees this tiny crack in the door, and he declares it wide open. They asked, and he will tell them. He doesn't give them a one-word answer that might have sufficed. You know, are these charges true? He could have just said no. He doesn't need much. He just wants to tell people about Jesus. He just wants to tell people about the one who has changed his life. And at any opportunity, he will tell them. And he does for 53 verses. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. I'm hoping it won't be my longest sermon as well. Stephen essentially does what Peter tells us all that we should do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Stephen was prepared. He was prepared to give an answer. A lot of people know what they believe, but fewer people seem to be able to tell you why they believe what they believe. Fewer people still are ready to give an answer. And Stephen gives an apologia, which is a statement of defense. It's where we get the word apologetics from. He doesn't give an apology Sometimes feel sometimes we're a little bit too apologetic about our faith. But he gives a statement of defense, a reasoned defense for his faith. This sermon, guys, is so rich. There are cross-references all over the place. It is crazy. I really want to recommend that you go through this sermon. Essentially what Stephen does, he tells the entire Old Testament story. He moves through the history of the whole history of Israel, from Abraham's calling to the giving of the law, the temple building. He moves through the whole thing. So if you want an overview, go look at, at Stephen's sermon. What is he doing here? Why is he talking about all of this stuff? From my perspective, again, if, if I'm like on trial and I'm, my life is on the line, I'm not going to launch into a history lesson. But Stephen does that. And two things are quite interesting here. First of all, he is proving them wrong. So again, those four counts of blasphemy, he's been, he's been accused of four things, and through his sermon, he proves that in fact, those accusations are not true. 
They're not valid. So the first part, he speaks about the fact that he's not blaspheming against God. He's not blaspheming against Moses and the law of Moses. That's kind of the middle section. And then he's not blaspheming against the temple. So that's what he's doing. He's taking them through this argument, proving them wrong. The other thing is Jews love talking about themselves. Not in a negative way at all, in the most honorable way. Their history and their story is super important to their culture. Oral tradition, this passing on to gener from generation to generation, it's important in loads of cultures even today. And, and Jewish people love tracing the work of God through the history of their nation. It's really, really important. That's their identity. And they believe that's their salvation. This hereditary status, this hereditary story is part of their salvation. And so in going through this historical narrative, he's speaking their language. He's saying, I know the story. I get this. Everyone in the synagogue would have loved this. They would have leant in and listened in to the story that he's telling because it was their story. So let's dive in. Are these charges true? That's the question. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. So respectful. I love it. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Remember, the first accusation is about blaspheming God. Right at the start, he disproves that. The God of glory, he speaks about God with such honor. But this phrase, the God of glory, is found nowhere else in Scripture apart from Psalm 29, which is a really famous psalm of worship written by David. It goes like this. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. By Stephen using this shows his familiarity with that usage in that text. He's saying, I worship the God of glory. I'm joining in the worship along with King David. He also very proudly claims our father, Abraham. Hey, did you see that? Pointing out that he is also a son of Abraham. He's a worshiper of the God of Abraham. I'm, I, I get this. In effect, he's saying, I'm not guilty. I'm not blaspheming against God. Not guilty. Count one. He moves on through verse 7. He's quoting Genesis 12. He quotes Genesis 15, and he walks through their history. He just knows it off the top of his head, right? He didn't pull out his sermon notes. Nothing wrong with sermon notes. But he didn't just whip out some sermon notes and say, well, you know, I wrote this out last night. Definitely the Holy Spirit is prompting him. Definitely. Probably ordering even the sermon for him. Definitely the Holy Spirit is working and using his words in the hearts of people. But he had to have something to start with. The Holy Spirit can completely drop something into my brain that I've never thought of before. But most often, he will bring up stuff that I already know. What a challenge to us. I wonder how many unglamorous and unseen hours of studying the scriptures led to this pretty spectacular on-the-spot sermon. What a challenge for us. Verse 8. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Well, Stephen comes back to this a little bit later. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. 
but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Stephen walks through the history. Many of these stories, if you were part of a Sunday school when you were younger, you'll recognize all of these stories. Um, and just to say that it's so much value in kids' ministry. You know, these beautiful stories that hold value just in and of themselves that our kids can learn from, and yet they help paint this picture of understanding of the whole big story. And it's just a little punt for kidsmen, just in case you're wondering what I was doing there. What, the, what our leaders are doing across there with our kids is absolutely amazing. Um, so Stephen walks through this history, but notice he starts to point out that it wasn't all peachy. He starts to say, you know, where he says, when they didn't like what he said, about when, what Joseph said, they sold him. He's establishing a pattern here, and you'll see it unfold as he goes first with Joseph, later on with Moses. They're saying the, the one that God selected to deliver his people was rejected by the nation. The one that God selected, the nation rejected. And we'll see this pattern established more and more and more as he speaks. He moves through the story of Joseph and the famine. He moves through Joseph's family eventually arriving in Egypt. And then he introduces the new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, didn't know the contribution, didn't understand the Israelite presence in Egypt. And so he's telling this whole long story. And then we enter into this horrible period of history. It's kind of like Hitler's final solution where they're trying to get rid of this nation. And they decide, the Pharaoh decides we're just going to kill all the babies. This was the first attempt to get rid of this nation, and it didn't work. Actually, the nation grew. I wonder if Stephen's just throwing this in, saying, you know what? When something's of God, you can try to get rid of it as much as you want. It's not going to work. You can try and squash the church by persecuting young followers, but it won't work. At that time, verse 20, Moses was born. So he's transitioned here. He's transitioned because, remember, the second thing that he was accused of was blasphemy against Moses. And so he spends quite a bit of time here with the character of Moses. And he was no ordinary child. And he starts telling the story. As he tells the story, he's honoring Moses. In effect, he's, he's saying again, I'm not guilty. I know Moses. I'm not blaspheming against Moses and the law of Moses. But he's also at the same time pointing out that through the story of Moses, without people really being aware, God was raising up yet another deliverer. And what did the nation do? He's drawing this parallel between Moses and Jesus, which he will bring to culmination later on. You'll see it unfold. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. At the age of 40, interestingly enough, Moses would have been in the prime of his life to be considered for the court of Egypt. At that point, he decided to visit his own people, Definitely the Lord must have dropped that into his heart. I don't know if he would have just decided that of his own accord, unless he was doing like a political move and canvassing to get more popularity or something. I'm not really sure. Anyway, for the next bunch of verses, he walks us through chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Exodus. So he just keeps on telling the story. Moses sees how his people are being treated. He ends up killing an Egyptian because he was beating a slave. He gets confronted about it, and then he flees to Midian. And the next 40 years of his life is spent in the desert. 
from a worldly perspective, he gave up everything for nothing, right? From a worldly perspective, Moses gave up everything for nothing. He would have been living the life. He would have had riches. He was set up for an awesome government position. You know, he was, he was living the life. But from a spiritual perspective, he gave up nothing and he gained everything. Somewhere his values were switched. There was a massive switch in Moses. And so there he is in Midian. And verse 30 says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Many of you will be familiar with the story, Moses in the, in the burning bush. Just note, Moses didn't feel called until he was 40. Hey? And he wasn't used until he was 80. How crazy. The first 40 years of the life of Moses, he was trying to make himself into something. The next 40 years of his life, he was in the desert, and, and, and God was showing him that he's nothing. And the last 40 years, God shows him that when you surrender to God, God can make nothing into something. And God uses Moses powerfully in his old age. I'm going to just pause here and go on a little bit of a tangent, if you're right, if you're right with that. I want to take a few moments just to speak to older people who are listening today. You are so important. You are so important. You have so much to offer. You know, there's no sell-by date or retirement age when it comes to God and his story. Look at the life of, look at the life of Moses. There's so much wisdom and experience and, and, and your story is so beautiful. Share that. Lean into what God has for you in this season where you find yourself. You might be thinking, no, it's too late for me. No, it's not. You might be thinking, I've messed up too much. No, it's, you haven't. If I can speak to younger people for a few moments... We see the life of Stephen, this young man. There's something so important about youth, about the energy, about the vision, about the, the, the kind of um, expectation of youth. What you see, what you believe. You might be thinking, I don't, I don't know enough. I don't have anything to offer. I'm, I don't have enough experience. No. We all have things about us that could be used to exclude us from being used by God. But God is not limited by us. He will use anyone who is available and is surrendered to him. So if you haven't found your way yet, or you're sitting there with a resume of mistakes, or maybe you feel too insecure, or you feel like you're too young, or you're too dumb, or you're too whatever. You're in good company. If you look through the story, even people that are mentioned in, this, in the sermon that Stephen gives, it's full of people who are too whatever, and God used them when they surrendered themselves to him. 
And I want to invite you to put your excuse down, whatever that excuse is that you're holding to, holding on to, that I'm too whatever. Put it down and lean into the story that Jesus has for you. The story of the church that you get to write because of who you are, because of where you sit, because of where God's placed you in this season right now. Lean into that story. Yo, give God the pen. He's going to write an amazing chapter using you because of how he made you. That's the end of my tangent. But I hope you've heard that. If we're gonna speak about chapter 29 and what is your part in the life of the church, lean in. Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. Use me. Use me. Use me as a witness. Use me to speak where I am. Okay, verse 35. This is the same Moses they had, that had rejected the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Do you remember this pattern that Stephen was, was kind of setting? He's reinforcing his point here. He's saying, remember Moses was sent to be your deliverer and remember what you did, what your, your nation did. You did this all the way through history all the way through history. So he's spoken about it in the time of Joseph. He's spoken about it through, this, through the story of Moses. And he's gonna, he's gonna land his point a little bit later. Then Stephen moves through Israel's time in the wilderness. Then he starts to point out the idolatry of Israel where they built the golden calf and where they started to worship idols. Then he shifts to the temple era. And this is almost like his final plea. Remember, he was accused of blaspheming against the temple. And so here he, he speaks about... Um, Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, built a house for the Lord. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. He's quoting two chronicles here. As the prophet says, he quotes Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Here he goes, it feels like he goes a step further. He's saying, I didn't blaspheme against the temple, but maybe you guys need to think about how, how you approach the temple. Because it felt the, the, the Jews over-venerated the temple. It felt often like the Jews worshipped the temple more than God. And so let's put the temple in perspective here. Once again, I'm not guilty, but maybe you need to look here a little bit. It's a great sermon up to this point, right? We know the end of the story. They, they don't shake his hand at the door. Uh, he gets stoned. If you didn't know the end of the story, that was a really bad spoiler. I'm sorry about it. And this is why. So he's quoting Isaiah and he says, has not my hand made all these things, this beautiful quote of scripture. And then he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. How to win friends and influence people. Doesn't that feel like such an abrupt change? It's like he changes gears dramatically there. And I wonder what was happening in the room. Maybe he started to see people shifting in their seats. Maybe he had pushed too many buttons and he could see that people were starting to disengage. As a speaker, you can tell when your audience has disengaged. Maybe that's what he was experiencing. Maybe people started to murmur and mumble amongst themselves saying, you know, what's, what's going on here? So I wonder what was happening in the room. Or maybe there was a shift in Stephen. 
Maybe just before he said the sentence, something in him shifted, where the weightiness of that moment sunk into his heart. And all of a sudden, he realized that getting across the message of Jesus right here is more important than anything they could do to me. Maybe that's where the shift lay. Something changed, and he launches in with you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Stiff-necked was a, a word that Moses used describing the nation Israel. Stiff-necked. Also, it sounds a little bit like Jesus, you know, in those seven woes. He says, woe to you, teachers and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Um, he's, he's tuning them properly. And then, remember I said he'll go back to this topic of circumcision here. You, uncircum you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. Circumcision was really important in the nation of Israel. I told you he was coming back to this. But he says, you know what? Your heart that should be circumcised is hard. Your ears are closed. You're worried about what's on the outside, but your inside will not be changed. You won't allow yourself to be moved. He carries on and saying, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been in couples counseling, you should never use the word always because it makes people mad. You know, when you say, you always do this. Stephen, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. He's saying there's the same pattern. Your fathers did this. They did it to Joseph. They did it to Moses. They did it to all of the prophets. The one that God sent to save you, you rejected. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Your fathers did it to all those other people. You did it to the righteous one. You're even worse. You rejected Jesus. You rejected the Messiah. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they said, good job. We love it. Preach some more. <laughs> they did not. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I wonder what that's about. I've gritted my teeth before. I've never gnashed them. I don't know, maybe there's some other parents out there who have also done like, can you go to your room? I don't know, that gritting teeth when you're feeling a little bit, you know. <laughs> I'm seeing some kids pointing their parents out here. But I've never gnashed my teeth. I wonder what that was about. This is rage. This is fury. I read a, a commentator said about this, that they had passed beyond articulate speech into the inarticulate utterances of animal ferocity. They were mad. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, what a contrast. Yeah, this crowd is full up with hate and rage, and Stephen is full of truth and conviction and the Holy Spirit. And Stephen, full of the Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Remember, he spoke about the God of glory. Remember. And now he sees 
the glory of God. The principle here is when your life is surrendered to the God of glory, you will experience the glory of God. He looked up to heaven, he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Hang on, is this wrong? Because there's lots of New Testament passages that speak about Jesus ascending into heaven. What did he do at the right hand of the Father? He sat down. Because that's what priests did when the work was finished. And Jesus, as our high priest, the work was complete. The work on the cross was finished. It was done. It had been paid. And he sat down. So why is he standing? When Stephen sees him, why is he standing at the right hand of the Father? So I've been thinking about this a lot. And I don't know. Obviously, I can't tell. I can't. I don't know. But I had two, two kind of thoughts around this. I never thought I would use a rugby illustration in one of my sermons. But yesterday in that rugby match, what happened to the coaches when the heat on the field got real? They stood up. They couldn't stay sitting. They couldn't. It was like, what, what's going on there? I'm standing. I'm standing in solidarity. My boy is on the field. It's getting hot down there. And I wonder if that's why Jesus stood. The other time that I will never remain seated is when someone arrives at my house. Unless you've been around for a really long time, then I'll just be like, roll in, you know. But if someone new arrives at my house, I'll stand up to greet them. I wonder if that's what Jesus was doing. I wonder if he stood at the right hand of the Father to welcome the first martyr into heaven. Welcome. You know, this peace that Stephen seems to have felt, this beautiful peace, he must have been okay with what he had said. He was at peace with what was happening, and I wonder if the Lord was just saying to him, you've done enough, I'll take over from here, just come home. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Think about what was happening around him, this utter chaos, and yet he has this vision that fills him with unspeakable joy and peace in the midst of this chaos. How encouraging for him, and how encouraging for the suffering servants in all ages to look back and to read these verses in this moment of utter tragedy for Stephen. But the contrast here is crazy. This mob with eyes fixed on Stephen and hearts filled with hatred and malice. And, and Stephen has his eyes fixed on Jesus and his heart is filled with joy and peace. Where are your eyes fixed? Verse 57. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They're trying to drown him out. They don't want to hear what he's got to say. They're trying to incite one another and create confusion. And they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. There's a gate outside the temple on the east of Jerusalem. It's the closest gate to get out of the city from where they were. It's now called Stephen's Gate. 
sad thing here is that this group of religious leaders are making out as if they're obeying the law, actually. Because Leviticus 24 speaks about stoning blasphemers. That's what you should do. But this is an utter mockery. These false witnesses. Same court had also found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and put him to death. And so Stephen is dragged out of the city as if he's not worthy of living there, not even worthy of dying there. And they stoned him. Stoning is hectically brutal, if you put your mind to think about it. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Our coats would have restricted people that were trying to stone somebody. But I think that Luke puts this name in here because it's a seed of hope. We meet Saul. He's standing in the front row of this execution, essentially. He must have been integral, perhaps even happy about it. Later on, we see that he is remorseful. But Saul soon will become the main character of the book of Acts. He meets Jesus, and he's changed from persecutor to preacher. I like him a lot more then than I do right now. Meanwhile, verse 59, they were stoning him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Who does he sound like? Jesus, his Lord. And when he had said this, he fell asleep which is a really poetic way of ending this tragedy. I've been reading this over and over in the last few weeks. I've felt such a sense of loss. It's so tragic and it's so beautiful and it's aspirational and it's awful all in one go. Why did God allow this awful thing to happen to Stephen? This man who had a face like an angel who, you know, he was using so powerfully. Why did he allow this to happen? Often we have that question, right? Why does such horrible things happen? Why does God allow them to happen? You know what? I know that God is good. I know that he's loving. I know that he's just. And those things don't change in the face of my whys. I have lots of whys. But Jesus said something in John chapter 12. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We see that through the death of Jesus. We see that through the death of Stephen. These many seeds. I mean, perhaps this is what spurred or prodded or stung Saul right in that end moment when Jesus met with him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He had seen a man die for his convictions. I wonder if that was in the forefront of his mind. There's a greater story here. This tragic story of Stephen cannot stop the story or the movement of Jesus. It's massively important in the Jesus story, in fact. It was no longer safe in Jerusalem. And so lots of believers decided that they would run away. 
and they would flee to different places. The end of the story, right? Not at all. Not at all. Remember the theme verse of the whole of Acts is chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The stoning of Stephen was the catalyst that moved many of these persecuted witnesses or believers out of Jerusalem. And where did they go to? To Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Didn't Stephen just epitomize that verse? Didn't he just epitomize that call to be a witness? If we remember back to Acts 1, Jesus said this verse to his followers. And so I want to put out a question to those of you who consider yourselves to be followers of Jesus. Is being a witness a part of your identity? Is being a witness even a part of your thinking? But is it a part of your identity? This is who I am. It was definitely a part of Stephen's identity, of Paul's identity. Paul writes in Philippians 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he was all about. You know, most of us don't have to answer the question, Will I die for Jesus? But the question we have to answer every day is this. Will I live for Jesus? 